Well, good morning. I don't know if I've said it yet. My name is Slim. I'm a, a pastor here at Mosaic. <laughs> Who is this guy? Um, if, you've, uh, if you've been with us for a little bit, uh, last week we, we retitled the last few chapters of the Gospel of John to be not just the Gospel of John for our sermon series, but the breakneck pace of injustice, uh, <laughs> which is just so intense, right? Uh, that's all Malcolm's doing. Um, <laughs> and it's because the, the last couple chapters of John are just a few hours of Jesus's life. It just, it goes so fast. The breakneck speed, the pace of injustice is just coming so fast, so sudden, and it hits Jesus. And so since that's such a, a chipper, happy message, I thought, let's maybe begin the sermon with something more lighthearted. Um, is that Okay. Sure. All right. So we're going to start off this morning with the top five weirdest laws in the universe. The top five weirdest laws in the universe. Now, you may have heard of other laws that are equally weird or more random, and you can submit them to me. We'll discern, and I'll repent next Sunday. But here's what I came up with. All right. The first one here. In Samoa, it is illegal to forget your wife's birthday. Okay, so that's right. You'll get more than the silent treatment from her. You'll actually maybe get jail time from that. And so some of you are like, hmm, I like this law. Where is Samoa? Let's go there. Number two, you must let anyone use your toilet if they ask you in Scotland. Random law that you didn't know was true. But if you ever find yourself in Scotland... And if you ever find yourself in need of a use of a restroom, you can just knock on anyone's door, and by law, they have to let you use it. What a hospitable country. That's great. That's great. Okay, kind of random. Um, all right, in Milan, Italy, it is a legal requirement to smile at all times, except at funerals or hospitals. The city of Milan, it says, you can Google this, I did. Uh, it's a legal requirement to smile at all times except for in funerals and hospitals. So you're just like walking around and, you know, maybe you're, someone you're dating is like, I, you know what, I, I realize I just, I like you, but like as a friend. And you're like, okay, that, that's great. <laughs> I like life. Right? You just have to smile. Like if, if someone says like, that the robbers took everything. And you're like, everything? Okay. All right. Just keep smiling. Just keep smiling. Like, at some point, you feel like that would, that would conflict with reality. But you have to do it. You're required, bound by law. I don't know what the repercussions are, but that's the law. Uh, but let's not just make fun of the rest of the world. Let's, let's look inward. Let's look at the United States. Uh, number four, it's illegal to pass wind in a public place after 6 p.m. on Thursdays in Florida. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> it's illegal to pass wind, which, okay, so something's going on with Florida. <laughs> but specifically on Thursdays, what happens on Thursdays after 6 p.m.? Rod DeSantis, tell us what is happening there. Like, I don't know what's going on. Okay. Um, last one. In Louisiana, it is strictly prohibited to wrestle bears. Which is, you know, I go, <laughs> sure. But why did they have to make that in writing? <laughs> what precipitated that? <laughs> like, I just, like, I don't, I don't understand it. It says here... Um, 
uh, the Louisiana law describes a match or contest between one or more persons and a bear is a bear wrestling match. And so I, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I know what we should do. We should, we should get a couple of guys and we'll, we'll take this bear out. <laughs> What? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know why you need a law for this. And I also wonder, like, why, why they needed it to say in the first place. But also, if that does happen, aren't those people dead? <laughs> like, <laughs> aren't they all dead? Do you really need a law preventing that anymore? You're like, we had this elite bear wrestling team, but they didn't make it out of the first round. So, like, I don't know. But here, the penalty, you may have had that up there. The penalty of this, whoever commits the crime of bear wrestling shall be fined not more than $500 or imprisoned for more than six months or both. So it's not as severe, so you can probably do it and get away with it. And it's not that bad because, you know, we want to be reasonable here. Okay, well, we are not just talking about random laws uh, in, the, <laughs> in the universe or laws in general. Today we are talking about the state. Today we are talking about the government. We're talking about the empire and how the church should interact with it. And so what happens when the empire comes to church? And that's the title of the sermon today, When the Empire Comes to Church. And I give all credit to Molly Callahan for that title of that sermon. Great idea. Um, and so most of us would welcome this, when the empire comes to church. Like, are, are you kidding? Since 1962, the Supreme Court held that the Establishment Clause prohibits school-sponsored prayer. And for millions of Americans, what that means is that the court has kicked God out of schools, right? It feels like we are being oppressed in this way. Like, what would it be like if the church had the ear of the empire? I mean, what could we do? Like, think of all the good things we could do if we had that. And so here's where we're going today. We're going to be talking about the church, the empire, and the real threat. That's the three points from here. The church, the empire, and the real threat. And so the church. If you remember last week, um, we saw Judas comes to Jesus, right? He brings that, that armored guard. He has the chief priests with them. And the other gospels tell us that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And you could think of the betrayal and the intimacy and the way he betrayed him, but just the, that betrayal right there. But then, after that, Jesus is now taken to the high priest Caiaphas, and as a result of that meeting with the high priest, the religious leaders invite the empire into a theological discussion. So the religious leaders say, you know what we need? We need the state to have a decision on who Jesus is. And so in verse 28... It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, which is probably around 6 a.m. That's when they did their business. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, so much is just packed into that one little verse right there. Like one, the religious leaders of the day invite the empire into this, this theological discussion Tell us, who do you think Jesus is, state? Like, I don't know. What, why would they think? Why would they know anything about that? But two, they come to Pilate, who is the governor of this area. He's the, he's the arm of the empire, the one who has all of the authority and power. He is Caesar's presence right here. 
Now, now Pilate didn't actually live in Jerusalem. He came here because at the time of the, of the Passover, the city would swell to over a couple of hundred thousand people. And so he wanted to have more of his presence there in this time to bring that good law and order, right? Okay, now Pilate and the Jewish leaders, if you didn't know, are not buddy-buddy. It almost appears that way from this interaction, but like Pilate is not seen as one of their friends. He's known to be ruthless in his way he deals with the Jewish people elsewhere. And so there is a, there is a tension there. He is a political leader occupying their territory, but in general, Pilate kind of lets them do their things so as long as it doesn't interfere with his plans. And now we know that Pilate has actually been made aware of Jesus this whole time. Pilate has had his, his fingers on the pulse of what's going on with Jesus because the Jewish leaders have been telling him. How do we know that? Because when Jesus was arrested, Pilate's guards were with them. He's been hearing about what Jesus has been doing, and so he brings the guards with them to arrest Jesus, to detain him. And now they bring Jesus to Pilate. And notice in the second half of verse 28, it says they did not want to enter his palace. Why? Because they would be ceremonially unclean and not to be able to fully participate in the Passover festival, which is just so, so ironic. I mean, if you think about it, that these, these religious leaders are like, we don't want to become unclean by stepping into your house or into your palace, but we will kill the Son of God. We will manipulate the judicial system in such a way that favors us. We, all, we want to do all of this to celebrate a feast that should be celebrating Jesus as the, the, the pinnacle of the feast. And so we, don't want to, we want to participate in that, so we'll kill the guy that the feast is supposed to represent. It just, it, John is putting this in here because he just wants to have all of this snark, like all of this, all of this for us to see right here on, on the front page here. And so what we see here is it's just ridiculous in a sad state when the church is holding its nose, supporting ugly and heinous things in the name of doing God's work. We need to be careful as a church that we don't do the same thing ourselves. Verse 29 says, so Pilate came out to them showing them some type of grace, coming out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? In verse 30, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. What's the charge against Jesus? Well, he's guilty. We don't have specific things against him, but you know, he's, he's not one of the good ones. He's doing criminal things. <laughs> That's all they tell him. He's one of the bad ones. And... <laughs> Here's one of the problems of inviting the empire into your church. The church is not monolithic, is it? Like, which church should have the empire attach itself to? Like, should we say that the Catholic church should have the ear of the empire? Should we say the black church should have the ear of the empire? The Latino church? White evangelicals? Like, what if that group doesn't represent you? Do you still want the empire and the church to come together? And what if that group, when wedded to the empire, now makes laws that says anyone who doesn't believe the way we believe is now a criminal? Some are actively trying to do this very thing in our, in our country right now. Are actively trying to do this. And it's truly dangerous. 
Like, the religious authorities had no charge that would stand up against Jesus in a court of law, and they knew it, and so they did not answer Pilate's question, but they took refuge in a generality that he's a criminal, that he's just guilty. Empire, take him out. Kill this person you, have, you don't know anything about. And so let's talk about the empire, right? The empire, second point here. You may have heard that, times, uh, that, that word a few times over the last couple of weeks here at Mosaic. It's something we've been talking about for a while. What is the empire? Here's a basic definition of it. An extensive group of states or countries under a single supreme authority. An extensive group of states or countries under a single supreme authority. So in Jesus' day, that single supreme authority was Caesar Tiberius. And Pilate, being the extension of that supreme authority, is now interrogating Jesus. And so you have this single supreme authority coming at what you would think is the king of the world. And it's like this this big clash that's happening. And you can feel it in the tension in this text. Like the... The Bible is very negative on empires. It's very critical on empires. It's a, it is an anti-imperial book in the name of God. We see that the, the Bible's view of, of empires, the way it views Pharaoh, the way God was reluctant to let the Israelites have a king. Like we can see that just in the history of the world of how this thing plays out. Empires lead and rule with force and violence. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about it? (laughs) I just like, I don't know if you feel the tension that's happening in this passage right here. Like Pilate is used to people cowering in fear of him. Like when he walked into the room, he knows people are going to go step back. And Jesus says, is that your idea or did someone tell you about it? Like, woo, woo. like the nonchalantness of Jesus in here is just so beautiful. Because like, why would you be afraid of the guy that you've created his heart, you've created his lungs? Like, you're not going to have a panic attack in front of this dude. But Jesus isn't trying to show Pilate how unafraid he is. He just, he just is unafraid of him. And what he's trying to do, he's actually asking an honest question of Pilate. Like, where is that question coming from, Pilate? Because if the question's coming from Pilate himself, and he's just asking, like, are you a king in the way you think of a king, the way you think of kingdom, then Jesus' answer would be, no, I'm not a king like that. But if his question is saying, well, because of what the Jewish leaders have, have telling me, if you're asking about, like, who is the messianic Messiah that's been prophesied to come, then yes, I am that king. It it depends on what he's talking about. That's how he would answer the question. And so you see the emphasis here in this passage, though, is the tension between Pilate and Jesus. The the, the Greek here negatively begins with the word you. Like, you? That's how Pilate thinks of Jesus. Like, this guy? (laughs) This guy is is supposed to be the king? Like, Pilate's expecting this this revolutionary type. And, And if Jesus even hints at being a king then Pilate has all he needs to execute him. Like if Jesus is, if that's true, then Jesus is trying to lead his own insurrection and and he's he's conspiring against Caesar. But when Jesus is asked this question, he says, he says, what's, is that your question or someone else's question? 
And then Pilate is getting frustrated by this in verse 35. He says, am I a Jew? Pilate replies, but he's like, this is a family affair. Like, you guys have some unfinished stuff you need to figure out. Like, that I, I'm having to be dragged into this. Don't presume I know or care about what this, this little feud you guys have. He says, your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Clearly, something's going on for there to be this big of a fight. He goes on, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. (laughs) And it's just this mental sparring. And for the longest time, I just thought that when Jesus said this, that says like, well, you say that I'm a king, was, was his like verbal ninjutsu. That he was just like speaking on such a level that he's just like, I know how to diffuse this conversation. And Pilate's like, whoa, <laughs> how do I respond to that, right? And he kind of does that, right? <laughs> he does say that my kingdom is from another place. And, and, but he also affirms that he is a king. And so what geographic region is Jesus a king of? He's not just the king of a Roman-occupied territory. Let's try the universe. That Jesus is the king of the universe. These beautiful images that we've been able to see from this web telescope here that's grabs these snapshots that are just astonishing. Like the, this here, and there's another image here that just like, I love to look into this stuff. And you see God's like playground of all the things that we've never even seen yet. We're, we're learning more and more about God's playground of him just creating and ruling over all of this. And we've seen the sun, this picture of the sun that's probably the closest and clearest view of the sun we've ever captured. And you're like, God just makes this with let there be light. It's just wild. That's the king. Like, that is the king who, who's, you're right. He's not a kingdom of this world. It's bigger than this world, is his answer here. He's the king of every world. He's the king over every molecule in space rock. I want you to say right now to your neighbor, Jesus is Lord. Say, Jesus is Lord to your neighbor. Say it again. Say it to the other neighbor. <laughs> that is a phrase that is just so familiar to Christians that we, we, would, we would affirm because Jesus is Lord. He is the king over all of these things. But we're not afraid to say that in this day now. But back in that day, it was super subversive. In the first century, Lord was one of the titles that they used of Caesar. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that the emperor is not. That's how they snuffed out the Christians in the first century. Would you, would you say that Jesus is your Lord or is Caesar your Lord? And I cannot bow down to Caesar. Like this is, this is a new claim for us to claim that Jesus is Lord over everything. And so Pilate comes back and says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, those are your words, not mine, (laughs) which I just love. Because here's the distinction between you and me. When you hear kingdom or king or empire, Pilate, you think about power. You want force, you want to force people to worship you and to make laws that keep you in power. It is all about power for you. And so when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, yes, he means it's, it's over all worlds, but I think he's also saying that my kingdom is so radically different 
than your idea of kingdom, that I wouldn't even call it that type of kingdom. Like, we're not even talking about the same thing here. Jesus isn't saying being in positions of authority or politics is bad. Like, let me be clear about that. I think that's important. I think we need more of you to be more concerned about our politics, about our, 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 our political realm. I mean, God uses Esther uh, as a queen for good. He uses Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God used Joseph to protect the people from famine, right? God is using all these things. And today, God could use some of you to make some real change in this world. Like, God could use some of you to point out that we only have 332 million people in the United States. 332 million people. And we have about 400 million guns in the United States. We have more guns than we have people. Something's not adding up. Something isn't right about this. Like, so God could be using some of you to make change. To say, let's, be, let's think about this wisely with wisdom and safety and care. And also, at the same time, the way we work for change is just as important as the change itself. Let me say that again. The, the way we work for change is just as important as the change itself. Because remember back when Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword, he tells him, I don't want anyone drawing the sword in my name. Like, which today means no one should be waging war in Jesus' name. Someone might say, well, what about the Crusades? They waged war in Jesus' name, and I would say, you're absolutely right. They did. But not everything waged in Jesus' name is from Jesus himself. In fact, they are going directly against John 18 in that moment. John 18 never says we should tell people to convert or die. That's the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. In fact, John 18 tells us that every single time that the church tries to wed itself with the state, the church loses every single time. Think about the church today, globally, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. It's exploding we're worried about how the church is doing because the church is starting to de decline here in America. But it's not, it's not declining across the world. It's just here in America. But you know the one continent where, where the gospel has almost completely lost its vitality, where, where the churches are just empty, empty cathedrals, is in Europe. And what was the experiment they tried to do in Europe? They tried to do this experiment called Christendom where the church was a part of the government, where they, they went against John 18, and it was state-run churches supported by the power of the sword, by taxes, by laws, and it, to, to now make it in that society, you had to be a part of the church. To move up in the social ladder, you had to affirm certain theological truths, which we say, oh, it'd be great. Think of the good things we could teach people. That's not what it did. Then what it did was it just made this society of people who had to affirm these things, who didn't really want to affirm these things, and it just created this false, fake Christianity that was just empty. And now the church is lost. Because when the church gets in bed with the empire, it loses its brilliance. And there are places here in America where we are trying to do that right now. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not about taking power, it's about giving it away. <laughs> and that makes no sense to Pilate. 
He does not understand what that is. And even though it doesn't make sense to the empire, this is the real threat to the kingdoms of this earth. The real threat isn't Jesus hoarding power. That would be too easy to squelch. They could just kill him right there. It wouldn't be his followers taking up arms. No, they could just say, okay, Roman army, kill them too, right? No, the real threat occurs in the second part of verse 37. Jesus says, in fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so what he's saying is the threat is Jesus is going to come in like inception and plant this radical idea in his followers' minds that's going to just change everything. He's going to to put this radical idea of this truth, that the truth behind all truths, the truth that's going to set you free is going to wake you up. I mean, this is what he tells us a couple chapters earlier in John 8. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is liberating. It will set you free. The God of truth. It's this truth of his salvation, the truth of who God is, the truth of this saving kingship, that he is here on earth. And it's so sweet. It's so intoxicating. It's so inviting that I don't need to force you to believe it. It's an offer of salvation. It's a cup of cold water in a hot sanctuary, right? It is, it is so good that you want it, right? This is the truth. Now, Jesus is not telling you to have nothing to do with political power. He's saying there are limits and temptations within it that will draw you away. What is political power? Political power is the power to make people do things, which you could see as could be good or bad, right? So you can think of it in a good way, pass laws that make people behave. You, know, you could put speed signs up and traffic lights to help guide and direct traffic for the good. And, and most of us would assume, I think, we, we, we assume those who go into politics are going into it for the right reasons. They're going into it to make their community a better place. They're trying to pull the resources for the common good. And I think that's true. But I say what typically happens over time, what typically happens over time is that Though someone may have run for office to help eliminate poverty, to to be the voices of the people, they soon realize there are certain perks to being in power. There are certain advantages to staying in power. There are certain things that make it really hard for you to stop looking outwards and only look inwards. And I think that's what happens. I think people go into office and they're they're very outward-facing. And very quickly, because of all the perks and the temptations, it becomes very inward-facing. Because this is the phrase that you've probably heard from your high school days, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we just see that on display throughout human history in the depravity of humanity. And Jesus is saying that my kingdom is not about power. It's not about taking power. It's about truth. And Pilate, to to his credit, I think it's just beautiful because it's just such an honest answer. Verse 38, Pilate retorts, what is truth? <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> like, what is truth? And it's not just like philosophical. What is truth? What is truth to you? That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying here, he's saying, get that weak sauce out of here, is what Pilate is trying to say. Like, what is truth? What, why does truth matter? Truth is whatever helps me in that situation. I don't care about truth. I care about whether you are a threat to the Roman Empire or a threat to me. Like, Pilate and Rome are so addicted to power that truth is whatever we need it to be. Do we have that problem today? 
Like, truth is whatever I need it to be in that moment. And so truth bends to serve whatever I want it to be in that moment and to serve me in my power. So verse 38, with this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him, so acquit him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And so if Pilate had a shred of integrity at this moment, after declaring him not guilty, he would throw this out and be done. Right? It would be ended. But no, he says, I will release a prisoner per this custom. And yet Jesus isn't even convicted. He's just been deemed innocent. And so this custom shouldn't even apply to Jesus. It's not grace that Pilate is showing. It's cowardice. Ugh, I, I always thought Pilate was, was, was conflicted. No, it's cowardice here. Pilate, though in power, is now cowering to power because there's a group of armed rebels begging for Jesus' life. There's an angry mob, and Pilate feels that power, and that's what he respects. And so he offers up a way out for himself as well as for the Jews here and says, Jesus or Barabbas to the religious leaders. And Jesus, who's healing the sick, who's casting demons out, who's endlessly talking about grace and mercy and true justice, or Barabbas, who we know is a criminal here. Mark's gospel tells us that Barabbas took part in an insurrection himself, which is what they're accusing Jesus of. Luke tells us that he's a murderer. And so the religious leaders, who do you care about? What do you care about? Do you care about the shalom of the city, or do you care about power? And the religious leaders chose power. When the empire comes to the church, the church loses every single time. When, 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 are, when are you tempted to grab for that power? When, what has God given you? Maybe he's given you some form of influence. Maybe he's given you some type of power, some opportunity. How are you tempted to abuse it, to use it to be self-serving like Pilate? How is it blinding you and starting to change you and corrupt you? Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're someone who really doesn't have any power at all. You're in a position where power is being used against you. How do you fight back against that? Do you say, I'm going to use power against power? I'm going to take it back? We're all tempted to it. Like... We're all tempted to this. Like if, if power has been used against me, if I get even a smidge of that power, I'm going to use it back because power corrupts, right? And we're all, every single one of us is tempted to it. And so whether you realize you have abused power and are feeling the weight of that guilt or you wonder, will I ever have a voice because of my social standing? Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to see that you have an endless supply of hope in Jesus, even in the darkest moments. Like, God will not give up on his church. 
Do you see that? Like, God is still at work. Because remember earlier in this passage, when, when the, the religious leaders ask Pilate for help because Jesus is doing criminally things, right? right? He says this in verse 31. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate says, take him and judge him by your own law. And the Jewish people in that day did not have the authority to execute anyone. And so they come to Pilate and they're asking for him to execute Jesus. But Pilate, in this moment gives them the permission to kill Jesus. He says, do it with your own law. He's telling them to go murder Jesus. Take him for yourself. He's giving them license to murder Jesus. But they respond in verse 31, but we have no right to execute anyone, which is true. They didn't have the right. And yet that hasn't stopped them at other times. Think about that. The... That didn't stop them when they executed Stephen, the first martyr of the church. They didn't go seeking permission from Rome to go execute Stephen. They just stoned him. And so why do they go to the the governor here seeking permission? And when he gives it to him, why are they reluctant in that moment? This is such a wild thing here. Look at verse 32. It says this. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying that I will be lifted up. That in my death, it's a death that I will be lifted up. And when the religious leaders wanted to execute someone, they put them down and they stoned them. But when you went to Rome and you wanted a Roman capital punishment, you had to be lifted up on a cross. This took place to fulfill the kind of death he was going to die. He is fulfilling something bigger in this moment right here. And that's when they nailed his hands to the cross. When they put nails in your hands and in your feet and for good measure stabbed you in the side and just let you bleed out, struggling for breath. He let this happen. And in that moment when he's there struggling for breath, bleeding out, looking powerless, you have to remember, but God. God is never powerless Jesus wasn't powerless in that moment. In that moment, when the world saw him as helpless, he was unleashing the power of God on the world at that moment. Think about that. When the empires of the world thought they had won, God had just defanged them in that moment. He took all of their power away because the empires of the world cannot win. Jesus is going to win, and he's going to win in his way, in his death on the cross. Napoleon Bonaparte has this great famous saying. He says, I have founded an empire by force and it has melted away. Jesus Christ established his kingdom by love and it stands to this day. Oh, (laughs) true power comes in this way. When God gives his power away, that it is established by love. And so while Jesus's kingdom is not of this world, it's most certainly in this world. God is living and ruling in this world to this very day. God is at work, and he's unleashing people left and right, not by power, but with truth. And truth is truth, and I encourage you to seek the truth out. Is is this God real? Let's search it out. 
Is the Bible trustworthy? Search it out. Like, this truth is, un- is going to unleash you. Seek the truth out. Because once you learn the truth, you cannot put that fire out. Once it's lit, it will never go out. Look to Jesus this morning who breaks your slavery to power, your addiction to yourself, and frees you to love the good, the right, the true, and the noble. Like, what would it look like for us to say, my king is not of this world, but he's ruling in this world in a very different way. I want to follow that king. Let's go to him today. Let's pray.